You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall in New York City. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. How are you, John? I'm good, Charles. I just got back from Panama, um, but more on that later. I'm still going through my pictures, but it was a fun trip. And I'm also very excited to hear that there's been another golden cat sighting in Uganda to yeah. this morning. I understand it. There may be a spot, a reliable spot for this species uh, after they've been seen a twice in what, two weeks at the same place. So that would be very exciting. That's a really, really difficult one to nail down. Um, and the other news is we wanted to talk a bit about this mammal watching meeting that's coming up at the end of September. Uh, it's been advertised recently on the site and on Facebook, but um, the meeting is being arranged in the very end of September and early October in, in northern Spain. Uh, Charles and I will be there. Um, it's a chance to get to know many of the people who we've corresponded with over the over many years now. Chance to get together. It's partly, um, it's partly a chance to get to know each other. It's partly a chance, and this is the main focus, I think, to try and think through how mammal watching can better help conservation how we can move this from something that's a hobby that we enjoy to a, something that's a hobby that really does good or more good um, for the world's mammals. And it's also a chance to do some mammal watching in practice. There's a, a really nice field trip organized looking for Desmond and then other animals in the, the Picos, I think, the Europa. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna be there, Charles will be there. Um, so it will be a chance for us to give some talks and to listen and um, just to get to know more people. So I hope people can come. If you need information, please write to us uh, at mammalwatching at gmail.com. Um, what do you think about this meeting, Charles? Are you excited? Yeah, it should be really fun. That's a really beautiful part of Spain, the whole Asturias area. And the Picos de Europa are probably, you know, some of the best mammal watching in Spain, but the wolves, wild cats, and if you're lucky, maybe even a Pyrenean and Desmond. So who knows? Mm. Uh, but yeah, the meeting should be great. And it'll be really fun to catch up with all these people that, as you say, have we've been corresponding with over the years, but uh, many of them have we've never met, or at least I have never met. Um, and the food is bound to be very good. So what more could you want? The food will be great. Yeah. And it's actually in a really nice nature lodge, like a mammal, a mammal watching lodge almost, where I think they see a lot of good stuff like polecats actually on the grounds of the place. And I should say it's also being organized by Felis, a new um, Swiss NGO, who have really dedicated themselves to mammal watching and conservation. So lots of reasons to go. I hope we'll see people there. Indeed. So we should also mention that this podcast is something of a milestone for the Mammal Watching podcast because it is podcast number 25, and it is also our one-year anniversary. So quite where that year has gone, I don't know. But it's been a lot of fun interviewing lots of very interesting people. And I certainly, for one, have really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I think the year's mainly gone ed editing this podcast and battling with um, iMovie. But uh, yeah, no, I've, I've really enjoyed it too, Charles. Thank you. Um, Charles, uh, you should get the credit for the inspiration to start this thing off. And... Um, I've really enjoyed talking to the people we've talked to. We've had some amazing guests on. And it's a pleasure that, you know, a few people are also listening to it as well. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And um, perhaps we could ask a bit of a favour 
if people enjoy the podcast, if you could perhaps rate it and maybe even leave some comments uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, be it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or whatever. Um, apparently that helps bump it up the list when people search for podcasts and it makes it easier for us to get a broader audience and to spread the gospel even further. Yeah, if you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, just don't, you know, don't do anything. Well, yes. <laughs> Very good point. Good <laughs> Absolutely. No, no one-star ratings, please. <laughs> so Charles and I are very happy um, this, this evening, this morning for Tony to be joined by Tony Friend from Western Australia, from the beautiful town of Albany, right at the bottom west corner of Australia. Tony is a wildlife biologist and he was employed for almost four decades as a research scientist with the West Australian State Conservation Agency um, to carry out research and conservation to work with threatened marsupials. In what he describes as his dream job, he worked mainly in the southwest corner of Oz, making many discoveries about the ecology and habits of threatened iconic species, such as the wonderfully named Nunbat, Dibbler, Red-tailed Fascagale, and the critically endangered Gilbert's Potteroo, which is one of the world's rarest mammals. Um, Tony will explain what all these names actually mean and what they look like as he talks. And he's also been an active member of the Australian Mammal Society, winning the society's extremely prestigious Scruffy Award. And he was a president of the Mammal Society there from 2009 to 2012. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. It's great to see you again. Thanks, John and Giles. Yes, welcome, Tony. I know that we have quite a few listeners to the podcast who are based in Australia, um, but this is the first time that we've had anyone from the region on the program. So very good to have you over here. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. Now, perhaps we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I guess uh, going back into my, my far distant history, I, I was born in Melbourne and lived briefly in Sydney and uh, family, but then moved to Tasmania where I, I really did most of my growing up and education. And, uh, and also, I guess, developed a love for the bush at that, at that time in that beautiful place. And uh, I was a pretty active bushwalker and, um, and also um, I was a sports, sports person. I played rugby union and uh, um, various other in, in thing, well, orienteering, which involves running around the bush. So bush was big in my past. Um, I studied at the University of Tasmania and ended up um, doing a PhD on um, everything you ever want to know about terrestrial amphipods, which is uh, which are a very common species. Uh, amphipods are mainly aquatic animals living in the sea or in fresh water, but there's one of the 91 families of amphipods uh, which has come out onto the land and are common in forest litter in various parts of the world. Um, during my thesis, I just described 17 new species of, of these animals from Tasmania and, uh, and then went on to do a bit of work at the, at the Australian Museum, um, furthering that the taxonomic bent. Um, however, the jobs were not forthcoming. Um, I, I was back in Tasmania after being in Sydney and then applying for jobs all over um, Australia. And this was the job that came up unbelievably um, to work on, on numbats initially. 
so uh, yeah, that that's the background, I guess. Um, there's a lot in that uh, background which contributed to me being interested in conservation and uh, and really wanting to make a difference. Um, I actually came back from from Western Australia where I started working to take part in the Franklin blockade, which is a uh, a protest um, to, to stop um, the damming of the last wild river in Tasmania, the Franklin River, which was ultimately successful. Um, but uh, I guess by that stage, I was a little entrenched as a, as a conservationist um, in job and in, in uh, you know, my theme of my life and, uh, and have continued, you know, since then. And at what point did you switch from being an amphipod researcher to a numbat researcher? What, what year was that? Uh, that was in 1980. 1980. Yeah. Okay. Which is when I moved to um, to to Western Australia and uh, started at uh, yeah the department then the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, which has gone through and and in the same job I've gone through five name changes of the department, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know gone, going from a very small department to a very large one. So mm -hmm. uh, now now I'm a research associate, having retired two years ago. Um, but still carrying on much of the same work, um, largely because I, I want I want to see continuity in that work. And when someone comes along to take over some of the things I was doing, then I guess I'll slip quietly away and maybe become a mammal watcher. <laughs> <laughs> so um, since 1980, has pretty much all of your work been with mammals? Or did you also work on other uh, different wildlife? Um, pretty much all with mammals. Uh, I did um, briefly delve back into amphipods because um, I got a grant to, to continue on some of that work uh, describing species in the rest of Australia. But um, yes, it was really, I've been, I've become a mammalogist. And, and it was interesting because I, I guess I was given the job because of having um, the predilection to look down a microscope and at, at little animals and the numbat being a termite eating mammal. I think the thought was there was, um, they needed somebody who could understand the termites so that it could understand the numbat. But pretty soon I, when I started the work, I found that um, the numbats were doing fine as far as food was going. It's just that something was eating them. So hmm. Um, I quickly switched, for, I guess, from being a, an invertebrate biologist to being a mammalogist and particularly interested in predation ecology. Hmm. Okay. And was um, <clears throat> most of your work, has it been um, research-based or conservation-based or what's, what, what's the, what has the general thrust been? Uh, well, it's, it's been a, a pretty generous mixture of both. Um, we are within a science uh, part of the department, so you know, publication and, and the research um, outputs were important. Um, but we were given the um, ability to actually carry out conservation actions as long as they were, you know, part of an experiment. And so I did a lot of translocations during that time um, to set up new populations. And, uh, and that was all, I guess that was stimulated by the department's Western Shield program which uh, is a was a huge um, a huge undertaking to bait for foxes or 
throughout the southwest and parts of the interior of Western Australia. Uh, and I guess the background to that is that uh, there's the poison 1080, which is sodium fluoroacetate, which is uh, being used as a mammal um, toxin in other parts of the world, but uh, it was discovered that the same chemical actually exists in plants in southwestern Australia. And so the native uh, herbivores particularly have developed a, a really strong tolerance of this nasty poison. Um, and they can take, uh, I mean, we, we make baits for foxes and a possum can eat about 80 of them before it starts to feel ill. Wow. <laughs> Whereas a fox, fox has taken in about four times the poison it needs to die. So uh, we're in a very fortunate situation here because there's a selective poison which uh, which works against introduced animals and an introduced animals have been, you know, severe problem here, um, particularly foxes, cats, rabbits, um, they'll be the worst ones. So um, with that in mind, well, with that background, um, this Western Shield program, which was, it was control of foxes. So that was the basic basis of it, but it also involved translocation of threatened species into the fox baited sites. So I was able to um, slot into that with, a, with various um, programs, initially with the Numbat, um, also with the Quenda, which is the little bandicoot that lives in the Southwest. And uh, um, I did a lot of work on red-tailed fescagale and the effect of baiting on that species. And that's uh, partly looking at, was there a threat to the fescagales from the baiting or was the removal of foxes effective in increasing fescagale numbers? So um, that, was, that was another, we didn't do any translocations at that stage, but uh, uh, I guess also the, the Dibbler program was, was enhanced by Western Shield. Uh, that was a, another marsupial that lives in down on the south coast and on the west coast, which was in trouble. I guess I should outline a bit about what these species are <laughs> instead of just whizzing through them. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> the numbat is a wonderful little animal. It's definitely my favourite uh, mammal in the world. Um, it's, it's insectivorous. It only eats termites. It's diurnal, which is also makes it extremely unusual amongst the marsupials. Um, and it's beautifully patterned. It has uh, a reddish brown fur over most, most of its body, but towards the, the rear of, the, of, the, of its back, it has a series of black and white bands, um, which form various patterns that actually you can um, distinguish individuals by the, the patterns of the stripes. That's been an important part of our work, although now we do microchip them. <laughs> but from the early days, we photographed every animal and, and kept a, an album of, um, you know, who's who. Hmm. So numbat's only about uh, half a kilogram. So a, a big male would be 700 grams. Um, females don't get that big. Uh, so they, they're unusual amongst marsupials in that their pouch has no wall. In other words, there is no pouch. There's just a, a mammary area which has four teats. And uh, just before birth, uh, just before the young are popped out as tiny little rice bubbles, I like to call them, um, the pouch forms, that, that mammary area forms like a bit of a cup, there's a bit of swelling around it. So there's actually something to contain the little ones when they get dropped in there. Mm. 
they of course attach to the teats then and then uh, they are, are carried around by the mother without a pouch but um, the fur on the abdomen covers the young one so they're a little bit protected as she races around the bush um, so that's uh, that's the numbats um, beautiful animal very pointy little nose um, great for digging holes and, and poking this huge long tongue down into the ground to extract the termites um, the quenda is a the bandicoot is a, is a they're small um, sort of brownish looking animals that not very distinctive in color um, but uh, they're also do a lot of digging in their um, lifestyle they, they dig for worms or underground um, soft-bodied insects and, and other um, invertebrates uh, and and also eat roots and, and things that are of high value um, corms of plants uh, and and uh, yeah basically, going for the good stuff rather than as opposed to a herbivore that just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats. <laughs> uh, Red-tailed fascigail is, all, is in the same sort of group as the numbats uh, with the desiurid um, marsupials, which are called carnivorous marsupials. The numbat itself is in its own family, um, allied to that group. But uh, the desiurids include the red-tailed fascigail and the famous antichinus that dies after mating, or the males do anyway. How big is the red-tailed fascigail? Oh, um, yes, they're um, a large male, be about sixty grams. So they're Tiny. they're in that sort of. And, and the dibbler is another one in the same size range. It's another desiurid, a carnivorous marsupial. It's uh, um, gets a little bit bigger. I think the largest one we've ever recorded is one hundred and thirty-five grams. So good handful. Um, a really active little animal, just absolutely never stops well it does stop it it goes flat out for about four hours in the evening and four hours in the morning and then sleeps the rest of the day and night which is interesting so they um mainly eat insects in the leaf litter and uh and, and also climb up small up bushes to, to take nectar from plants when it's there um berries but mainly they're insectivorous and they, okay, yeah, so great name uh, dibbler i think i'm going to have to Next, next dog I get, I think I'm going to name it Dibbler. <laughs> yes, uh, that's one of the names that uh, we got from the Indigenous people early on, very early on, and there was a there was quite a good relationship between um, Aboriginal people and, and the white settlers in the early days in Western Australia, certainly in parts of Western Australia. Albany, in where I live, is has a very good record. Other places, not so. But there was a, obviously a lot of exchange between the people and the, the, the Aboriginal people and the settlers, and a lot of uh, their names, animals and plants are still used now. Uh, they were recorded early on, and the, the, um, the farmers, the, the new, you know, the new settlers didn't try and call them hedgehogs and badgers, <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which was definitely the case in Tasmania. Um, you know, they even called the thylacine a tiger or a wolf and, you know, this sort of stuff. But over here, it's been actually very refreshing. Um, Ludwig Glaut, who was the curator of the Museum of Western Australia in the 1920s, actually published a little paper recommending use of, of na native names for marsupials. And uh, I think it was just the marsupials he concentrated on. And... And so a lot of the names that he decided on, because 
of course, with different language groups, you've got different names for the same animal. <laughs> and he just uh, picked on, on the Dibbler and the Numbat and um, the Null Benger for the, um, for the, pig, the honey possum <laughs> and et cetera. So that we've got those, um, those names still at hand. Fantastic. Um, and I've, I have seen all of those species you've talked about and all of them, I think, thanks to you, essentially. So when I was living in Australia, I would pester Tony once a month to try and come out when he was trapping and do this and do that. So it's very nice, Tony, to pay you back with the honour of being you can be on this podcast. When did Western Shield start? Uh, 1996 was the, the yeah. official beginning of it. Um, I it was when like, I was like, when I was over there, first got to Australia, it had been going three or four years and, and WA, Western Australia then, your, your part of it was this mammal watching paradise with all these species that had largely disappeared or families as things you would never see easily in the rest of the mainland. It was like Tasmania, you drive along and you'd be, a, you know, a wallaby or a woolly bandicoot, um, quenda, chudich, quoll, every five minutes on the road. And then... I'd sort of heard that 10, 15 years on things, numbers have dropped of some of those species. So what's the latest on things like the number and the woolly, the little um, sort of small kangaroo over there? Yes, okay, well, it's been, a, it's been quite a, a, a long story, really. Um, and I guess I've, <clears throat> I've been involved from the number point of view through that. And that, that's exactly what happened with the number. Now, between, well, we'd already started baiting on, in Dryandra and some of the Whitbelt um, reserves back in the 80s, and we're already seeing the, the results of that. So uh, in terms of numbat numbers rising. Now, um, uh, Tony, can I just stop you there? Can, um, can I just ask how big an area did the Western Shield program cover? What, what, what sort of land area are we talking about? Uh, it was three and a half million hectares. So I don't know, there's probably quite, quite a few right. jurisdictions okay. that fit easily into that. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. I think when you, you, knock a, you knock a couple of zeros off and you get square kilometers. So, you know, it's right. a, lot of, a lot of land. A lot um, of land, yeah. In terms of the area of Western Australia, I'm not sure, but I'd say it would have been about a sixth of the land area mm -hmm. of, of the biggest state in Australia. So um, that's, you know, it was significant. Uh, and because of this tolerance to 1080, it was possible to throw the baits out of a plane. Mm -hmm. So that's how such large areas could be covered. Um, the baits were, were uh, they are, and still are, distributed at a density of five per square kilometre. And, and, and what, what does this bait actually look like? What, what's, uh, <clears throat> what's, it, what's it composed of other than the poison? Yeah, I started, it's, it's based on kangaroo meat. It started as a, we started using dried meat. So it was just a piece of kangaroo uh, that was cut up to about, I, so I think it was about 120 grams of, of meat. And then it was dried to a point where there's a skin on it. And then a, a 1080 oat, which is a, you know, for baiting rabbits was popped into it. But then later on, it developed into injected 1080. And then there was a sausage a sausage developed, which is called a probate. And it's it's dried to the point where it's like salami. So it's quite hard, hmm. makes it less um, less penetrable by small carnivores. So of course, um, the 
although so foxes are highly highly susceptible to 1080, um, if you're a very small animal, even if you have some tolerance, you could actually eat enough toxic material to, to put you in danger. So there was a lot of work done on that, uh, you know, bait acceptability by small carnivores in the early days and by, by um, you know, raptors and, and other, you know, birds that would have a go at other meat bait. But it's, it's turned out to be pretty safe. Um, the main thing that's, that's threatened apart from um, foxes are farmers' dogs. So that can cause a few problems, of course. Uh, but now, you know, after all these years, all the people who live near baited areas are, you know, they're used to it. They know what, um, what they can and can't do with their dogs and they manage their dogs you know, more, more, sustain, more sustainably. But anyway, to get back to the story of the, the long story of Western Shield, um, as you say, John, in the early days, there was spectacular results um, and all the little mammals boomed. Um, however, after sort of the mid nineties and with the numbat, it happened very suddenly in 90, between 1992 and 93, um, there was a, a drop or a crash in some cases of mammal numbers. And, I'm not sure that we really still understand what happened. Uh, with the number, it was, there were a number of possibilities. And, and of course, for all of these things, they may have risen Sorry, to Tony, the, can yeah. I just inter interrupt? You, um, you said 92, didn't it start in 92? Do you mean 2002 for when the numbats crashed? No, no, it, it was actually that, well. Because you said so it started in 95. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we've been baiting since uh, 1985 in some areas. Oh, 85. Sorry, I misheard. Right. Yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. Sorry. No, no, you're right. It's 96 was the Western Shield. That was when yeah. it became um, statewide, if you like. Yeah. But that was based, I mean, that, that program was based on partly on the Numbat work, partly on work by Jack Kinnear and the um, brush tar, the um, uh, black-franked rock wallaby in the wheat belt where it was demonstrated that baited areas, numbers rose, unbaited areas, they, they didn't. So that, on those two studies, that Western Shield was, was conceived and then other studies contributed. There was one on the Chudich which showed numbers went up. So the actual program didn't start at till 96. But by that stage, we'd already gone through this cycle with the numbat, gone through the roof. I see. Yeah. And then, then it dropped, within one year, it dropped to half, the sighting rate that we've been getting before. At that stage, we did some um, health studies on the number and found that actually there was um, a gut worm, a acanthocephalin parasite, which um, has a lot, part of its life history in termite. And, and they can actually, they're actually quite large worms. They're about a millimeter in diameter and about uh, three millimeters long. And they can actually congregate inside the gut so that the gut is blocked and actually the um, peristaltic action of the gut makes it climb up over itself and form a really tight uh, section of gut and food can't get through so the animal dies and we had quite a few numbats die of that now that's probably something that it's spread in the population it's probably depend is density dependent so it probably depends on you know high numbers of numbats you're going to get more of this thing happening so that was one thing. 
Of course, there was a, what you would assume that there was going to be a point where they'd run out of food. The numbers kept going up. They're going to be limited by food eventually. So that was also a strong hypothesis. Um, but a few years later, the cat emerged as a, as a, pr a predator of numbats where we hadn't been aware of that before. And in fact, studies showed that when you remove all the foxes through baiting or other, any other reason, um, cats are benefited and they build up in numbers and become you know, predators in place of the fox. And uh, 2006 was the first time we actually found evidence of, of numbats being eaten by cats. It was harder in those days. Now we can swab radio collars and send them to the lab and get DNA, you know, looked at from what the predators, from the predators' survival, uh, saliva. Um, but in those days, you really were you basically had to catch them in in the act. Or uh, what we did was found collars inside cat dens, and uh, but that hadn't happened before. That was a weird thing. There was a gap of um, well, it was over ten years that the numbers had been very low, um, but we hadn't picked up cat predation, even though we had radio collared animals, you know, constantly. So um, there, it's still a bit of a mystery, I think. There may be some other disease issues, perhaps, but the fact that it happened across the board with all the, you know, species of medium-sized marsupials that, that um, had recovered and then dropped again, I think the cats have to be in there somewhere as, as a culprit. And so then the next part of the numbat story is that um, the, the work, we started work after that 2006 discovery, which led to, I mean, it took a while to get the money and, and get things set up. So by 2010, we started working towards an experiment in Dryandra where we would start baiting cats. Um, the ultimate result, well, first of all, we found we actually did the work with the 1080 and showed that 50% of predation of numbats was being done by cats at that stage. And numbats have a lot of predators, um, half a dozen different species of raptor, uh, carpet pythons, the chudich, and then cats and foxes. So um, for the cats to be eating 50% means they're having a big impact and removing that impact would have um, a big effect. And, and in fact, through this time, there was the development of another 1080 bait called Eradicat, which is a softer, um, more attractive sausage being likened to a chipolata. And uh, that was shown that, you know, cats would, if they're really desperate, they'll eat it. <laughs> you know, cats like to eat live things. They don't, they're not scavengers. So um, it was always a long shot that, that they, the bait would be effective. But um, we've shown that um, it, at Dryandra, where it was applied from the about 2013, um, cat numbers have dropped out, and so is the predation of, of numbats by cats. So the last, and we have this group of numbats constantly, um, we've generally got 12 to 20 numbats collared in Dryandra. Uh, the last cat predation was in 2019, and before that, the last one, the one before was 2015. Oh, fantastic. Um, they've just dropped out of it now. Yeah. Interestingly, though, we're getting more predation of numbats by Chudich, <laughs> which have also gone, you know, through the roof um, since the cat bait's been been applied. So the, the graph of numbats. A, sorry, can you explain what a Chudich is? Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So there's another another um, desiurid marsupial. So it's in the carnivorous marsupials um, group. Uh, it's it's a larger animal. It's, 
gets up to two kilograms uh, and uh, it's black, well, generally black fur with white spots. Uh, some of them are brown, are more brown than black. Um, they, they're fierce predators. Um, to handle them, you wouldn't know it, actually. They're, they're usually quite docile when you handle them. But uh, I, I've seen, actually, I've seen um, video, video of one eating a numbat. And it's not nice. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, they're, they're um, one of them with species. In fact, most of these species I'm talking about, uh, except the dibbler, were widely distributed across Australia or even into the desert. Um, <clears throat> but um, several of them, like the Trudich, ended up just in the southwest corner of Western Australia. Uh, and and that's, that distribution story is, is also, you know, explains why Western Australia has been so successful in, in risk recovering mammals, because it's the only place a lot of them were left. Uh, as the number, you know, number used to be across southern Australia right into Victoria. <clears throat> so um, anyway, yes, yeah, so I'm sure it should have moved into the picture, but not not nearly to the extent the cats were. And, and uh, the, the graph of numbats over the period from when we started doing our surveys, because uh, we do a standard survey each year um, involving driving around the same route a number of times. And we started in 1987 and um, there was this under fox control. So the, the numbers rose steadily to 1992 and then this crash and then I sort of a dribbling along, continuing, but mostly going down until we started cat baiting. And then uh, just about two and a half years ago, they started up and, and, and now the, the, the sighting rate is equal to what it was in the 1990s and that early 1990s. So that's spectacular. Um, you know, wouldn't have wished for a greater retirement present actually <laughs> <laughs> it's better than a, a gold watch yeah that's fantastic <laughs> you bet. let me get one of them public service a timex perhaps yeah <laughs> um and i tony i'd love for you to to tell the story about about the gilbert's potteroo um, your work, but it, but particularly how it was discovered, because it's, you know, one of the reasons Australia is such a fantastic place to have an interest in wildlife is there is so much still, I'm convinced, to be discovered there. Um, and nothing maybe illustrates that better than Gilbert's Potteroo. Would you like to tell the story? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to explain what a Potteroo looks like. Okay. <laughs> well, there's one on the wall. <laughs> two right. of them, actually, um, by John Gould, and that would have been specimens collected by John Gilbert. Uh, so they're a, a very small... The, the potteroos are in a subfamily of the Macropodidoidea, uh, and they share that with the betongs, so the, the boily, the brush-tailed betongs, and those guys is about... In the whole fam, subfamily, there's probably about 10 species. So... Um, they're yeah, little, little kangaroos. Um, they um, quite, as you can see, they're little fat little hunched animals. Um, they don't have big long legs. They they produce um, the young in a pouch. As I said before, a kilogram's a good size um, potteroo. Um, and yeah, they've got. I guess facially, um, they have very long hair, which gives them the appearance of having long jowls, and they look a bit mournful actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, 
Some mothers love them, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so the rediscovery occurred in 1994. Um, I've been working in wildlife, you know, in the southwest of Western Australia um, for 14 years by then. And uh, I knew about Gilbert's Potteroo and just accepted it was one of the ones that were gone. Um, there had been a survey uh, funded by this, uh, the Commonwealth government in the late 70s. And it just happened before I, I arrived here. Um, trapping in the southwest, looking for Gilbert's potteroo and the broad-faced potteroo, which was another species that had disappeared. Um, anyway, they caught a lot of quokkas <laughs> and Dacty did some trapping at Two Peoples Bay, but not a lot. Um, and I know where they trapped and we've trapped potteroos there since. But anyway, no result at that stage. <clears throat> in 1994, uh, a UWA student, Liz Sinclair, was doing a genetic study on quokkas, which another one of our little marsupials, it's another little relative of the kangaroos, this short-tailed short -tailed variety, um, very famous for its presence on Rottnest Island and, um, and Federer had a photo taken of it. They do selfies very well, actually. Uh, so quokkas, unknown to most Western Australians, are quite common on the mainland, and particularly since the baiting, uh, the baiting program's been going on, and they, they're pretty prolific on the south coast around, around here. So Liz was trapping quok, tracking quokkas at Two People's Bay, which was reputedly a place where there were lots of quokkas. Um, she didn't catch any quokkas, but caught this and got bandicoots and then got this other thing in the trap, which um, she and her assistant for, at first thought, oh, you know, they just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> but the next day <clears throat> they got another one. So they decided they'd better bring it back. I think they'd had some guilty thoughts during the day. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought they'd better bring it down and they got in touch with um, the authorities in Perth and, and uh, a team was dispatched with bits of bones from the museum and all the old disc, uh, descriptions of the potteroo so that they could... Uh, by this stage, we were pretty sure it was the potteroo. I'd actually got a phone call from Liz at Dryandra and went down there as quickly as I could and had a look at this one they, they um, had in a bag. And I, I'd seen potteroos, the long-nosed potteroo in Tasmania. So mm -hmm. I was convinced this was a potteroo. Um, anyway, the... The team of experts arrived and uh, they, um, yes, nodded sagely and said, this is a good potteroo. <laughs> wow. so was how, when was the last record of that? that? I mean, how long had that been thought to be extinct? Okay, so um, John Gilbert collected it in the 1840s. He, yeah. he was the first one to work out this is actually something different from the other potteroo that they'd already collected in the East. And um, so... Then it was, there were a few records all around Albany, mm -hmm. King George's Sound, as it was called in those days. And the last record was in the 1870s, the last wow. specimen that was collected. Amazing. Um, of and course, it was rediscovered, were, so 1870 till? 1994. 94. And it was in Australian standards, a relatively populated area. I mean, it's, it's not populated, yeah. but it's near a biggish town, Albany, in a nature reserve that's well visited by birders who spend a lot of time staring into the bushes for these skulking specialties there. So if that could be rediscovered there, then 
what in yes, the huge no, it, swathes of, of unknown Australia is out there. It is quite. It was. It, it was for us. It was quite hard to believe that a, that a one kilogram marsupial could be hidden away there for so long. And and not only the birders. I mean, there was a concerted effort um, with uh, CSIRO scientists to uh, investigate the noisy scrub birds. So they were camped out there. They were you know running around for five years, I think, looking you know at the scrub birds, but. Uh, you know, potteroos are very, very um, cryptic. They don't like coming out in the open at all. And um, we, ha we have to set our traps in the bush. You can't just set them by beside the, the track like, you know, for most other mammals. So, yeah, they're really quite, I can understand that they, they wouldn't, they were looking in the wrong direction and someone just needed to do some trapping. They didn't have, you know, sensor cameras in those days. So uh, I can understand how it happened, but it just seems amazing that no one found a roadkill, for instance. And uh, uh, yeah, but it seemed that there was just this tiny little population left. The species was just, just distributed across the south corner, um, southwest corner. There are bones in caves in Margaret River, which is over on the west coast at the bottom. And uh, there were clearly potteroos, you know, in that wet, wetter section, because the rainfall kind of drops off as you go east from Albany. So it's it's sort of an identifiably different vegetation type and things change as you go further east to get drier. So that was very exciting and uh, a recover, recovery program was started, but the, it was really based in the early day, early years on, on trying to get them to breathe in captivity. So, and, and the idea of having an insurance population in captivity. But uh, the potteroos didn't want to didn't want to cooperate, and they they bred a bit in the, in the early days. But then the then the colony was plagued with um, disease and lack of breeding, and um, I think we just never got the the food the the, the diet right for them. Um, their studies show that they their diet is nine, over ninety percent underground fungi, so truffles, mm. and that's basically all they eat. A little bit of fruit, not that there is much fruit around, there are a few tiny little berries. But yeah, essentially digging up uh, fruiting bodies of underground fungi. So it was, I guess it was understandable that we couldn't get the diet right with things that you can buy at the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, that it wasn't going well. And, and when I was um, invited, directed, whatever, <laughs> to come down and and take over that program. It was four years after, it was 1999. And uh, I continued with the breeding program or as we got a few more, popped a few more young out, but really it was it was on the, on its dying, you know, stages. Um, but uh, we also did a lot more work on the Two People's Bay Colony and worked out how many were there. And it was about between 30 and 40 animals was it. Um, highly, highly threatened by the possibility of fire because since the noisy scrub bird was discovered, the reserve had been protected from fire. So there hadn't been any controlled burning or fuel reduction. It was just, just we'll, we'll put fire breaks all around it and hope for the best. Uh, so anyway, highly uh, vulnerable to fire. So that's when... Um, obviously always there'd been the idea, yes, we should set up new populations, but it was going to be from the captive bred animals. So uh, <clears throat> I had a look at what we could do and, and there was an island 
not far from Albany, just to the east called Bald Island, which actually has a lot of vegetation on it. It has quokkas too. So that seemed to be a, a good possibility for a, um, an insurance population. So anyway, cut a long story short, we started doing um, moves of animals to the island in 2005 um, at a very slow rate because we didn't want to affect the Two Peoples Bay population. Um, so it was, I think it was three animals in the first year and two, then three, you know, really just bled them onto the island. 10 in the end, um, but four years later, the population was booming. They started breeding straight away. Um, and I think, by 2010, we had 70 animals on the island. So you know, it was a great step forward. Um, so that, that uh, strategy continued and we were very fortunate in that uh, there was a new government scheme, state government scheme that called Biodiversity um, Conservation Initiative, throwing a big lot of money to do one thing which will benefit long-term. And so we applied for that and got uh, three quarters of a million to build a fence. So a fenced area uh, on the mainland, which we also put potteroos into and then ended up with a population of about 35 there as well. Wow. So yeah, things were going quite well until 2015 when the feared catast catastrophic fire at Two oh, Peoples no. Bay happened. Mm -hmm. And basically the whole reserve was burnt this tiny little bit left with a few potteroos in it. And of course, if we hadn't set up those other populations, that species would be extinct. So it's, um, it's, it's one of the species and this has been identified in a, in a global paper recently that have been saved from extinction by conservation action, um, which, you know, would have been much nicer if the place hadn't burned. <laughs> but I guess it, it showed that, you know, there is uh, there are good outcomes from all the money that gets poured in, and I guess the politicians are very happy to hear that that sort of story. Yeah, right. oh, that's so good. Um, I just just a personal kind of anecdote about. I don't know if I ever told you this, Tony. I I certainly didn't tell you at the time, but I Tony showed me a Gilbert's pottery in November two thousand and three, um, and I'd arranged to go over there, and I was there. But that was the morning actually. My mother died that morning. I got. I woke up at five thirty to go and meet you, Tony, with the traps, and there was an email from my brother saying my mum had died and she'd been out for a long time. It wasn't a shock, but I just remember there was a. I didn't say anything to you. I didn't want to. I didn't really want to talk about it, but I just remember that drive to go and see the potteroos is a very kind of surreal, surreal drive to Two People's Bay, and I saw the animals and um, yeah, it was a. They have a place in my heart because of that. And at the time, it was yeah, the rarest animal I've ever seen. Probably still is actually. Um, but they're still they're still going really thanks to you. So all that work you've done, you've, you've saved that species. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope that there'll be more of them around. You know, I think uh, one of my um, less uh, reverent colleagues said, "Well, yeah, you know, you haven't saved them until you can eat them." <laughs> <laughs> so what do they taste like then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they were quite. Quite, quite uh, favoured by the Noongar people here. They ought to be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, Western Australia is it's, it's a huge area. Um, what are some of your favourite parts of Western Australia and, and beyond in Australia in general um, to go and see mammals? Well, I must confess, I haven't, you know, travelled 
as widely as I'd have liked. I haven't been far up into the Kimberley. Um, I've done some wonderful trips into the desert, um, which has been has become more difficult in recent years because of COVID, I guess, and and just generally um, discouraging of tourism in those parts. But um, I've done some work on bilbies out there, and and also in the early days talked to Aboriginal people with a stuffed nomad in my hand and asking them to tell me all about it. Um, that was a wonderful trip, but I guess it's not really a mammal watching trip as you, as you might say. Um, but I guess I always come back to the Southwest and particularly the wheat belt. Um, and, and um, you know, I'd go for a holiday at Triandra. <laughs> mm. I've worked, you know, this is the place I've done most work in, in my life and I just love going there. Um, and, and now, especially there are great opportunities to see things. Um, now, mammal watch in, in Australia, and I'm not, I'm not a great mammal, mammal watcher, so I'm not sure how it works internationally, but in Western in Australia, you've got to be doing it at night. You don't mm. see very much in daytime, you know, a few kangaroos popping around, but um, the really good stuff is at night. And uh, I, I haven't done much in North, North Queensland, but that's the, the home of the arboreal mammals, and that's a real hot spot in the because they're up there in the tree, you can see them with your light and uh, some wonderful, you know, the gliders and, and possums, ring-tailed possums and various other things, tree kangaroos. So um, that, that would, uh, to me, that would be a hotspot place. Um, right. And I've got a, a friend here, Jimmy Lamb, who, who's a very active man watcher and uh, um, he's just crazy. <laughs> he seems great. We go, we go to Dryandra and we're, we're sitting around having a beer and he's off out with his spotlight and he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how many mammal species uh, do you get in Dryandra? Do, do you know roughly the uh, the mammals? Oh, um, not off the top of my head. I'd say about 15. Okay, right. Um, because there are bats as well. That's not counting the bats. Uh, there's about seven bats, uh, I think. Um, we don't have any native rodents there, except... Nearby, you you might pick up a a, a um, water rat, mm -hmm. but not in the actual dryander itself. So yeah, I mean, I think I think the big thing to watch for the future is Dirk Hartog Island, a big island, seventy five thousand hectares, I think, off in the Shark Bay area. It was a uh, pastoral lease until recently, so there were sheep there, um, but it's become um, a national park, and the sheep and the goats have been removed and now the cats have been totally removed. So that's by, you know, our department's work. Uh, and then now the, re the reintroduction of 14, I think it's 13 mammals and a species of bird is underway. So um, already there are banded hair wallabies. The shark bay mammals, basically, plus a few others. Yeah. Um, there are already banded hair wallabies and rufous hair wallabies and shark bay bandicoots and dibblers now. Um, and shark bay mice and greater stick nest rats have all been reintroduced onto the island. Numbers are still low, but um, now this is a place where there's virtually no trees. So uh, there's, there's good visibility. And I think in a, in a few years' time, you'll be able to drive around at night and see all sorts of things. <laughs> wow. Um, is it open to, to list, by the way, but that's, that's right at the end of the of the uh, whole thing so you know right. once once they're all there they'll put someone on there to eat them 
<laughs> oh, how cool. And is, is Dirk Hartog, um, is it somewhere people can visit? Or is it only research? Yes, yes. I mean, it's, oh, it's not easy to visit. Um, no. you, can, you can fly there and there's a resort and they'll take you around and I'm sure they'll, they'll really benefit from the, the mammal profusion when, that, when it happens. Oh, wow. um, you can take a, a vehicle, a four-wheel drive over there and um, there's a barge which gets you over the mainland. It costs a few hundred bucks to, to do it. Or you can go by boat. Um, from Denham, so it's you know, so there are ways of getting there, but it's it's not easy. But you know, for keen mammal watchers, I'm already um, planning my next trip. Is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting! <laughs> is there much of a mammal watching scene in Australia? I mean, obviously, many of the animals are nocturnal, but. Do you get lots of people going out there to to look for these animals? Um, and do you see this as something that could perhaps in the future become a, a very positive force for conservation? Yeah, I, I guess I've thought about this. I mean, we there's mammal watching the way you guys do it, <laughs> which is go anywhere any time to see the one the next one that we'd like to see um, and then there's mammal you know seeing mammals as part of tourism or, or part of recreation and and I mean this is something I, I know a lot about in from working at Triandra and we've even got an index of of num, numbat index which is um, if there if we see less than five per hundred kilometers driven, then people won't go there hmm. to see numbats. Once it gets above that, it's worth your time because in a day you'll see one. You know, that's the sort of... Uh, and, and numbats are the big draw card at Dranger, obviously, diurnal. Um, and then uh, people then head off out after dark with their, with their torches and spotlights and things and, and um, you know, look for possums, I guess, um, going for drives and seeing the whirly hop across the road. Um, which is the brush-tailed beton, um, about the same size as a, as a potteroo. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's a casual thing. It's not real serious. And I guess the, those people also be watching birds during the day, you know, mm -hmm. there's something to do or going for walks. Um, mm -hmm. But um, like my friend Jimmy Lamb, you know, he's very serious and uh, <laughs> I don't know anybody else that's, Oh, one or two, one or two of my colleagues would, would go to quite long lengths to to see particular animals, but um, I, I don't. I wouldn't. In my experience, it's it's not terribly common as a uh, an elite activity. Mm -hmm. But um, the more results the average Joe Blow can get from going for a drive in in the bush and seeing mammals, then that, that that's where it gets really positive, and because they're going to go and tell you know, their friends and, and relatives and, and there'll be more awareness of the, of the wonderful mammals we have here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and that has got to be good for, con for their conservation. And are there any sites in Australia which um, are sort of well-known where you can really go and see a um, reasonable number of uh, diurnal species? The, I mean, I, I think really the, the big draw card is nocturnal and and that's um you know north queensland the daintree in those places where you can be assured of seeing great animals um 
probably on a guided tour would be best. Uh, but uh, you know, people know where to go, then they'll they'll find them. Um, but I think I think Tasmania too, like deserves a mention just because there oh, are, yes, I don't know if there are no foxes there still or there's there were no foxes. No, no, they they haven't been able to find any trace of foxes there for years. It appeared to be something running around there for a while. Yeah. But yes, I'm sorry I forgot about Tasmania. I guess you grew up. Yeah. yeah. That's terrible. We're forgetting my heritage. But um <laughs> yeah, I mean that that was the, the, the astounding thing about Tasmania is how much roadkill there is. That's right. You know, you, I came over to Western Australia being used to having to dodge dead wombats and quolls and bandicoots but just nothing on the road if possibly a kangaroo here or there but just drive for hundreds of kilometers not see anything on the road so the best the best way to see the wildlife in tasmania is from a glass bottom bus <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean it says that tells you there's a lot in the bush there's, yeah it does a lot exactly. on the road Tony, it's so lovely to see you again and talk to you and to hear uh, an Australian accent for the first time on the podcast in a long time, ever. Um, yeah, thank you so much uh, for just such a fascinating portrayal of your work and um, all you've done for such a really cool selection of, of animals in WA that are, have some some funky names and they're really, they're just such cool little things. And we'll, we'll put some pictures up and encourage everyone to look these things up for themselves. Because if you've never seen a number, you've not lived. They're beautiful, beautiful animals. Thank you very much. It's okay, John, it's been a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Tony. I have to admit, I learned an awful lot about Australian mammals and uh, I completely agree. They do have just the best names on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. You've been listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast.